All right, we have been going through the book of Hebrews, and we uh, finished off Hebrews 8 last week, so we're going to jump into Hebrews 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14, uh, so if you can find that in your Bibles, Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. This is what the word of the Lord says. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, be, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through, etern who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And thus ends our reading of God's inerrant word. May all who hear it find that their conscience has been purified. Now, would it be Mother's Day unless I talked about my mom a little bit, right? <laughs> you see, growing up as a kid, my mom, she had two sets of dishes. There were the ones that we used every day for everyday use. And then there were the special dishes, right? The ones that only came out on rare occasions. How many of you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you grew up in a home with two dishes, two sets of dishes? Yeah. So like Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving when it was our turn to host, only on those days with these special dishes would the, would the fine china come out. And I remember being warned 
by my mom to be very, very careful if ever I was carrying one of those dishes. And yet when the day was over and the dishes were washed, then they would get stored away once again into the china cabinet, never to resurface again until that next special occasion. You know what I'm talking about, right? For these dishes, they were sacred. These dishes, they were set apart. These dishes were holy. Let's think about that word, holy. Holy is one of those religious terms that we as Christians often use, but rarely define. And yet it's a word that we find frequently throughout the Bible for one of the most common descriptions of our God. Look, look at Isaiah 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now in the Hebrew language, anytime a word is repeated three times, it is done so for emphasis. God isn't just holy, he is holy. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God is holy? The, the Hebrew word here is kadosh, and it means sacred. It means set apart. It, it is something that is marked off or withdrawn from, from common and ordinary use. In other words, that which is holy it, it is distinct from everything else. And our holy, holy, holy God is distinct, is as distinct as you can get. But how is he distinct? How, how is he set apart? Well, there's two things that come immediately to my mind. One, God is holy in the sense that he is the creator and everything else is his creation. In other, in other words, while everything else has a maker, God does not have a maker. And think back to the book of Genesis. I mean, how does that book begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so out of nothing came everything simply because God chose to make it. Second way that God is distinct God's holiness extends to his morality. God is distinct when it comes to good and evil. Look, look, look at what Jesus said to the rich young ruler when he was asked by this man what good deed he should do to gain eternal life. Look how Jesus answered this man. Look at Matthew 19, verse 17. And he said to, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus, having not yet revealed himself to this man as God in the flesh, he points out to him that there is really only one being who can claim to be good, and that being is God. Now, now why do you think Jesus said that? How can God be the only one who is good? 
Because he is the one who defines what is good. And everyone else must submit to his definition. And so when we say that God is holy, when we say that he is distinct, it is because that is his nature. That is who he is. He is our creator. He is the definition of goodness. He is holy, holy, holy. And because God is holy, it has implications for us. How does his holiness affect you? How does it affect me? Look at, look at Leviticus 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Think about that for a moment. Be holy, for I am holy. Because God is set apart, he demands that his people also be set apart. How are we to respond as a sinful people to this God who, who has now witnessed to us that he is holy and, and has now commanded to us that we should be holy as well? How do we respond to that? What are we to do if we don't own any fine china? If all we have are just the regular dishes, how do we set the table if our china cabinet is empty? That's what our author in Hebrews hopes to answer for us today. Look at, look at Hebrews 9, once again, look at verses 1 through 5. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, that first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which was the golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. What our author is once again doing, what he's done throughout the whole book of Hebrews, is he's, he's a, setting up this distinction between the old and the new. He is, he is now describing the regulations, the, the requirements, if you will, for worship of God under that old covenant. And in this description, he, he begins by recounting its location. He is describing this earthly place of holiness. He is describing the tabernacle that was constructed under Moses. The very place where God would descend to dwell with his people. And our author, he is now emphasizing the point that, that this place, it was separated into two rooms. There, there was that, that first section called the holy place, and then this second section called 
the most holy place. Now, in that, in that first tent, there was the lampstand and the table, and upon the table was the bread of the presence. But then, as, as a person would travel further in, there was this other room, this, this inner sanctuary that was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And, and, and there was this, this curtain that, that separated these two rooms so that the most holy place would be distinct. It would be set apart. And in this room, there was the altar of incense along with the Ark of the Covenant. And, and it was this Ark that was the most holy element within that tabernacle. For that was the place where God had set up his throne. The, the mercy seat between the cherubim. And it was from that seat that God dwelt with his people. Now the description that is given here, it, it was written to give a frame of reference. Uh, a frame of reference that, that everybody, all the Jews understood. And, and it was written to show these two distinct sections of the tabernacle and to get a person to think about the differences between the two. For it was in these two rooms where God had established how he would fellowship with his people, how he would be worshipped by the Israelites. Now don't get me wrong, both sections were sacred. I mean, the, the first room is still called the holy place, right? And a person needed to be ceremonially cleansed in order to enter either one of those rooms. And yet the one was called the holy place and the other was called the most holy place, right? Or the holy of holies. And it was in this most holy place where the presence of God became manifest. And this is reflected in what we read next. Look at, look at verses 6 through 9. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as that first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now this first room, this, this first section of the tabernacle, it was created for regular use, even though it was called the holy place. You see, it was holy in the sense that a person who was unclean could not enter. And yet there were people in there all the time. The priests would come in and out of it every day. For the lamps on the lampstand had to be constantly replenished with oil. And every day the bread of the presence had to be replaced. Daily men were serving their Lord in this outer chamber. In this holy place. Think about my mom's everyday dishes. I mean, we needed to use them on a regular basis, am I right? And yet, we wanted them to be clean before we use them, right? 
And so we, we, we've washed them. And this is the same thing for this holy place. There, were, there was a need for it every day. And yet in order for the priests to, to enter in, they needed to be cleansed. And yet, as our author moves further into the tabernacle, into that inner chamber, into that second tent, we discover that this place was not for everyday use. Rather, it was special. It was unique. It was distinct. For only one man could enter in, this high priest, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was like my mom's good china. Only rarely would it see the light of day. But when it did, it was for a special purpose. This day of atonement, this once a year event, was a day when the high priest would come into the presence of God. And he would intercede for God's people. And yet this high priest, he couldn't enter in without first taking a blood offering. Now this important sacrifice, it required two things. The blood of a bull, which was for this man's own sins and for the sins of his family. And then the blood of a goat, which was for the sins of the people. Let, let, let's see how this is described in the book of Leviticus. Look at Leviticus 16, verses 11 through 16. It is here where we see uh, the requirements of, of our first high priest, Aaron, uh, when, when he would enter in. It reads this. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense of the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony that he, that, so that he does not die. Let me pause there for a second. This morning we talked about the glory of God and how he is a light. Um, this incense, it, it was used to veil that glory for Aaron's sake. That's why it says so that he will not die. Because if Aaron was in the presence of the full glory of God, he would be consumed. And that's what this incense, this smoke that goes up, it covers the glory for Aaron's sake. Let's let, let's read let's read further. Look at verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, on the east side and in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the 
for the tent of meeting which dwells in the in dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. You see, blood was needed because of the sins of this man and because of the sins of the people. Because of their uncleannesses. And God had, had Aaron sprinkle this blood with his own fingers, demonstrating to this man that, that, that he truly did have blood on his hands. And this blood would have to be sprinkled on the cover of the ark over the mercy seat that is God's throne. And this was all done because both he and the people that he was serving, they were unclean. They were sinful. We, we live in a world today that doesn't understand the magnitude of our sins. We, we like to minimize our sins, don't, do we not? We, we like to redefine them in order to take away the stigma. We, we call them mistakes. They're, they're slip-ups. Uh, we, we say that we were, not, we were not at the top of our game. Or, or that we didn't make the best decision. But what we don't say is that our hearts are wicked. In more recent history, we, we have shifted to psychologizing everything. We, we say, oh, we're, we're not really evil, we, 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 rather we have a condition. And, and so we excuse wickedness by making a diagnosis. But we've gone further than that, have we not? For today, we, we, we flip the script altogether. No longer are our evil acts a condition, rather they're now declared as being good and heroic. And so we heap praises on those living sinful lifestyles. We call them brave. We call them courageous. And, and the reason we do this is because we've minimized the holiness of God. We, we, we don't understand our own depravity, our, our own hearts. And, and so we try to shrink that gap between God, between God and man. We want to make it smaller. Think about the passage we just read. What was Aaron doing? He was entering the presence of God. He was going into the Holy of Holies, that most holy place. And what did he have to do in order to get in there? He had to slaughter a bull. He had to kill a goat. Death had to occur. And, and blood had to be spilled in order that God's wrath would be appeased. In order that Aaron would not die. Let me ask you something. Do you understand that when you sin, whether you know it's a sin or not, it is an affront to God? That what you truly deserve is death. Even the small stuff. That when you tell that, that, that little white lie, thinking that you meant no harm, that even that requires blood. But more than that, that because of your sin, because, because of those things that you think are no big deal, you are shut off 
from the presence of God. And that's why you need an intermediary. That's why you need a high priest, someone like Aaron. One who will go to God for you and offer up blood for your forgiveness. And all that is necessary because God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He, he is set apart. He is, he is pure. And His glory is a consuming fire. And if you were to step foot inside that room, inside that most holy place, you would be ruined. And that is why you can't go near. For He is holy and you are not. And so you must have someone else Someone who will act on your behalf as your mediator. And it is for this reason that we, that we read that, that this most holy place had been cut off from the people. For under the old covenant, the way into that inner sanctuary had not yet been opened. But why? Why, would, why wasn't the ministry of that old tabernacle enough? Let's look at our next two verses. In verse 9, it says this, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, that deal only with food and drink and various washings, Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You see, the, the problem with the old tabernacle was that it was built under that old covenant. A covenant that was established on outward obedience. And so it was incapable of resolving the real issue. The issue of the human heart. It could not clean the conscience of a sinner. And, and that's why these two rooms, they, 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 they represent the, the, the condition of sinful man. The, that, that first section, that outer room, is reflective of man's outer actions. It dealt with food and drinks and various washings. It dealt with regulations for the body. And yet it was that inner room, that that holy of holies, that most holy place that revealed the interior of a man's heart. For, for it put on display man's inner nature. Hey, think about it. What, why was that outer room being constantly used? Why was there daily action there? Because it is easy for us to look good on the outside. Am I right? But in that inner room, in that most holy place, it's closed off. The people were denied access because they had a guilty conscience. A conscience that, that couldn't be cleansed in some earthly temple. No. And that is why we need a new system. A new covenant had to be established. A new way to draw near to God. And so, a different blood offering had to be given as well. 
and it needed to be brought into a different tabernacle, into a better tabernacle. Look at, look at verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into, that, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It was just last week that we saw that Jesus had enacted this better covenant. A covenant that was built upon better promises. But one of the demands of this better covenant was this need for a better tabernacle. According to our author, Jesus entered into that greater and more perfect tent. He, he went to that tabernacle above, which is the original and not a copy. He approached the true mercy seat, the real throne of the Father, where the glory of God is neither veiled nor obscured by a, by a haze of incense. Rather, God's glory is on full display all the time. And the reason that Jesus can enter where others cannot is because his conscience is clean. For just as the Father is holy, so too the Son is holy. And praise God that He is. And yet, what do we read? He still brings with Him a blood offering. Not the blood of bulls, not the blood of goats. Rather, the blood that He offers is His very own. You see, this blood that he sprinkles from his fingers, that he sprinkles upon the mercy seat of God, is the very blood that came pouring out of the wounds of his own wrists. It is a blood that, that gushed forth when those nails were, were pounded in. It is the blood of his own suffering. It is the blood in which the wrath of God was appeased so that our sins could be forgiven. Why must he bring this blood? I mean, Aaron, we can understand, for he was a sinful man. But why must Jesus bring in this blood? It's not for himself. It's for you. And it's for me. Jesus, he, he acts as this better high priest under this better covenant, as he brings true reconciliation between man and God. And he secures for his people eternal redemption. But how does he do this? Look at our last verses. Look at verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Praise God indeed. 
You see, in that, in that old tabernacle, the focus was on cleansing the exterior, on the outside of man. It was for the purification of the flesh. And that's why this curtain blocked the way to that inner room. But, but in this heavenly tabernacle, the cleansing has now shifted to the interior, to the inside of a man. It is for the purification of the conscience. And this is what Jesus' blood does. It cleans the conscience. Look, look at Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 41. Here we see an interaction with Jesus and a Pharisee. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that, that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now this Pharisee who invited Jesus to dinner, he would have been a man who, who would have been steeped in obedience to God's law. He would have been one who, who would have kept himself ceremonially clean at all times. He would have avoided any, any object that was unclean. And he would have gone through all the ritual washings at the, at the appropriate times. And he would have brought the right sacrifices to the priests in the temple. And yet, inwardly, what does Jesus say that he was full of? Greed and wickedness. In other words, outwardly, he looked the part, but, but inwardly, he had a dirty conscience. Dear friends, just like that Pharisee, you too need your conscience cleansed. It, it, no, amount, no amount of ritual or ceremonial washings will do the trick. There's no good deed that you can do that will open up the curtain to that inner room. Do you see that? It is only through the blood of Jesus that you can gain entrance. Let me ask you, do you have an unclean conscience? Do you try to look the part by doing the right things in front of the right people. And yet, deep down, you, you know your own heart. You know the things that you hide from other men. And so your conscience isn't clean. And you know that if you stood before God, that, that you would be exposed for the fraud that you are. Is this you? It is for this very reason that the blood of Jesus is so vital. His blood has the power to wipe the slate clean, to wipe your guilty conscience and make you clean. His blood has the power to, to rip open that curtain that, that separates you from God. 
For his blood allows you access into that inner chamber, into that most holy place. For it is only through his blood that you can have your sins washed away. Look, look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 6. And notice, as we read through this, notice the change. Notice the distinction from who we were to who we are now. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you read that last part? Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were children of wrath. And you had no right to come before his throne. But God showed his mercy toward you. But God saved you through his grace. But God raised you up with Jesus and has now seated you with him in the heavenly places. This verb isn't written in some future tense. It is written in the past tense. This means that right now, if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, that you are currently seated in the throne room of God. You, you have access to the Father, even as I'm speaking to you. And all because Jesus entered first. And he brought with him his blood. A blood that can clean your conscience. And so now, you... If you are in Christ, you can enter that heavenly tabernacle. You can approach that throne, the mercy seat of God. And you will not be consumed, nor will you be turned away. For your conscience has been cleansed and your guilt is no more. Think of it this way. Jesus has brought out the good china. And now you are able to feast with your God on all occasions. It doesn't get any better than that. But if you are not in Christ, if you have yet to turn from your sins and to put your trust in Him and your trust in the power of His blood, then you are still living in, in the shadow of that old tabernacle. Where, where the curtain 
cuts you off. It, it separates you from God. And there is, there is no blood that, that, that can cleanse you enough where you can enter in. And so if you are not in Christ, this is my calling to you. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. For if you will do that, you will find that he has a seat prepared for you as well. At that heavenly table, he'll set out the good china for you. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. He has the power to save. Let us pray. Father, we confess to you that that we are not worthy of your mercy. We're not worthy of your grace. We're not worthy to enter your presence. For you are holy and we are just sinners. We are full of sin. And yet, because of your son, you, you have provided a way to remove our guilt, to, to cleanse our consciences so that the curtain could be opened for us. And that is why we come to you now. Help us to believe this message. Produce faith within us by the, by the mighty working of your Holy Spirit. And help us not to neglect this gift, but let us bask in, in your presence each and every day. Give us the boldness to go before your throne. Not based on anything we've done, but based on what Christ did for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.